Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Feels like we could all use a little escapism right now, so it seemed like a decent time to play my recent interview with Jimmy Buffett, who has a new album out called Life on the Flip Side. But we kind of talked about his whole career, going back to the earliest days. We talked about everything from his friendship with Hunter S. Thompson to the fact that Bob Dylan has named Jimmy as one of his favorite songwriters and the two of them actually spent time together on a boat one day, got high, and then later Jimmy met Dylan again and it was a very different experience. We spoke about his prowess as a businessman and how that relates to his artistic life. We spoke about the future of concerts and a whole lot more. But he started by talking about that new album, Life on the Flip Side. Let's hear what he had to say. You take it chronologically, when we started thinking about doing an album, we haven't done one in, in like seven years. And there were two things about that. I didn't know where the albums would still be you know, viable by then or else you'd be uploading like one or two songs. But we still are a playing band, you know, and we've got a great little studio down in Key West. And my uh, creative side had been working in musical theater with the show on Broadway and then the touring show. So I was working on that a lot, actually rewriting songs and stuff like that and, you know, doing changes and things. So once that was all put to bed, I said, yeah, we need to do an album. And we had some good songs that, that had some ideas. And so I concentrated on writing them. And this is like a year ago. So and we said, we're gonna, I'm just going to concentrate on writing these songs, getting some of uh, the go-to people, wingmen that I, and women I use to write with, and just concentrate on that. And we want to go to Key West and record. And I want to go to Cuba to shoot the album cover because I got a friend over there, Roberto Salas, who's a photographer. But I thought life on the flip side was referring to the Gulf Stream and having spent so much time in Key West myself and having a a family history of my grandfather was a sailing ship captain and my dad sailing in and out of Havana Harbor. So that was originally it. And then life on the flip side also, I, the tongue in cheek was those people that remember 45s will remember there was a flip side. Those that won't will ask questions. So that was the whole initial thought process. And then along comes the pandemic and the title kind of fit, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a music in a way, but it never was supposed to be that. But, the songs when they came out, uh, Chris Blackwell's a dear, longtime friend, and you know, for what he, his input is is very valuable to me on and this whole process. When I sent it to him and he played it, he said, "Yes, yeah, it's got that Jimmy thing going." He said, "But in only Blackwell way," he said, "But there's a sharpness to it." Mm. <laughs> and I went, "Yeah, there was a little sharpness to it." He picked it up right away. So now, when you hear all the the whole album together. Yeah. It, I think that it, it's doing its thing. You know, when I make a record, I don't make it for me. Once it's done, people can interpret whatever it is that they think I'm saying or whatever, whatever it means to them. To me, that's what a, a collection of songs on an album, because I'm still an album guy and I wanted it to be an album. And I did the sequence myself. And when you sequence things on a record, I only know one way to do it. And that's like a live show. It's only a few tricks that you do. It's about energy and it's about, you know, recognition. So I got enough songs that people recognize that they can sing along with. So when they, sure. before when you did a new album, you could never put 14 songs out and do a show. They'd walk out. So you always tried to pick the songs that would fit into what was working before. So that's the same way when we did these songs and we did them in Key West. We cut all the tracks in five days in Key West. We were, we were 
hungry to get in the studio and you know the vibe was going and you just go with it and so when that happened then i sequenced it i used that energy and there there was no recognition because nobody knew the song so <laughs> but i just wanted it to take that energy like it was a set list and that's that's how i did that makes sense how has your songwriting process changed over the years i think you tend to use collaborators maybe a little bit more since probably mm -hmm. and for a while now not it's not a recent thing uh, but yeah how has it changed since, say, like the early 70s? Like, what's been the yeah. progression in, in your process? <clears throat> well, it, it's changed in, in the way, in the beginning of anything. Like, I didn't co-write with anybody because I didn't know anybody else. You know, you nobody <laughs> really was, was around and nobody, you know, few people were listening. So when I got to Key West them the very first time, I, when Jerry Jeff Walker drove me down there and I fell in love with Key West and moved there, you know, I'd had like, five really bad years in Nashville, but I was still writing. So I came to Key West with a little bit of luggage and a lot of songs. And that environment, being in there and then, you know, soaking up the cultural aspect of from pirate days to the writers to, you know, the tolerant lifestyle that an island had, you know, there was the Navy, there was a gay community, there were hippies, there were, it just, I fell right into it and took those songs there. And I think I soaked up a lot of that when I wrote those songs which when we did this album, I went back and listened to those first three albums a lot mm. because that was just a previous to anything else happening where I met people that I wanted to write with or other people, you know, Mac McAnally wasn't around then. And now he and I are, you know, pretty much co-writers on a lot of stuff as Will Kimbrough. And, uh, and then now I ran into Paul Brady when we were in Ireland and an incredible writer. And so none of that was happening then. So you're kind of, you had your own stuff there and I had a lot of it and, and I had enough to almost make three albums. <laughs> and those wow. first three albums were the songs I went to Key West with. And I wrote a few there, but I would say 75% of them were written in the time period when I was, I was working down there and working in bars and, you know, when working on the coffee house tour, you know, you'd start out like in the Carolinas or, you know, you'd go to New York and do the bitter end or something. But there were a couple of clubs in Florida and boy, when I got to go to Florida, you got very excited to go down there. And a lot of that writing was done in Coconut Grove when I played there. And then by the time I got to Key West and moved in, they moved in with me. And, uh, and you know, I did, I went back and listened to that. And I went, when we were in Key West, I got on my bicycle and listened listen to the, I didn't listen to what we were doing new. I, I drove around town and listened to what we did back then. And that's where I got the idea. White sport coat and a pink crustacean was the first ABC album. And I, wa I wanted to put on a sport coat and go to the Gulf, go to the Cuba side. And, and that was, yeah, I wore one on that album. I wore one on this album. <laughs> wow. I mean, when you, when you think about what you put out between 73 and 74, yeah. it's crazy. If you could go back and tell that guy from, you know, 1973, all the things that happened to you since, what would he make of it all? I was on a quest, you know. I think he'd be very happy that we made it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, because you start out, you know, you have to commit to this. This is not a part time job. And it's in those days, you know, the ratio of success is real minuscule. There's a lot of wreckage on the road to success. You know, I was watching, interestingly enough, uh, the last two days, my friend Frank Marshall, he and Alex Gibney have done a, a two part documentary on Laurel Canyon. And I think oh, it's wow, coming out yeah. this week. And you know, I was listening to all those, you know, that group of people I was listening to in a bar in New Orleans trying to get to California, you know. So 
you know, you have to have that quest. And uh, the guy that went to Key West, what he really went there to do is get out of Nashville in the wintertime and go, because I knew from playing shows, like I said, and I kind of developed a pretty good following in the coffeehouse circuit. So there were two places or three places in Florida that were on my route. And I knew that, you know, as a, as a child growing up on the Gulf Coast, I was a beach boy and I loved going back there. And then, you know, and once I got on that part of the circuit, I knew I was coming back. Somewhere or another, I would get to Key West. And somewhere or another, I would get to California. Well, mm. California didn't work out to way later, but, you know, you had to start <laughs> that quest somewhere. And then what I did in Key West got me to California. When you wrote <laughs> Death of an Unpopular Poet, were yeah. you expressing you're kind of, in a way, your worst fears about your own career? I wrote it about a poet named Kenneth Patchen, who was a, mm. this very hip kind of beat poet back in, you know, Lord Buckley and Kenneth Patchen were like guys out of the village who were like poets and beat comedians. And I'd worked with a couple of guys that did their material. And that's how I found them. You know, when you'd go on them. On that day, as I was the opening act and all these other guys were like, you know, that Uncle Dirty was one the guy named Bob Altman. And he did a lot of beat poetry kind of stuff. And he did Passion and he did Lord Buckley. And that's where I picked it up. And so I started reading Kenneth Passion. I just love the fact that, yeah, the guy made it and he left his money to his doll. That's what I, that was. <laughs> that's, yeah. I, and I had a dog. I had a dog named Spooner at the time. So I put my dog in that song. But the interesting thing was, what the pandemic has brought about and, and having to having to be shut in for a while. We started asking fans, you know, because we'd started Radio Margaritaville and Margaritaville TV a long time ago. So we've been in touch with our people on a pretty regular basis before this happened. And so I just used that platform to ask him. I said, you know, what songs do you want me to play that I never play in the show now? And in an hour, we got 12,000 requests. <laughs> and... I've done them. I've been, that's what one thing I did. I'm doing videos of them that we're going to put on and, and death of an unpopular poet is number six. Nice. So I got back, I got to play them again, you know, and I haven't played these songs in a while. I mean, stupid me, but it's interesting that it kind of, you know, it's kind of, you're going full circle on this thing to revisit that and, and come forward from here. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened between the time we went to Key West the first time Time we went to Key West, this time to do the record, and where we go from here. Speaking about here and now, I mean, you obviously were supposed to be touring this summer. Yeah. Uh, and now you're not. And it's the thing that a lot of people are dealing with, especially people like yourself who are creatures of the road in, in parts. So how, how are you kind of dealing with all that? I was in Florida on the way to St. Bart's for the boat race, and I got a house there. And 10 minutes before we went to the airport, they shut St. Bart's down, quarantined it. So as everybody else has similar stories, where the hell do you go? So I had to get everybody home out here and that's the way we got here. And I thought, well, now what? And, you know, my kids were out here. Nobody knew what was going on. So, you know, I went back to my old sailing days. You know, this is a pretty good spot out here that we've got. I've got a little trailer out in Malibu that I use as a studio and I surf out of. And I went, it's like, this is the boat we're going to say, we're going to get through this storm on. So mm -hmm. I stayed here and have been here since. And um, I'm going to go back in a couple of weeks. But so you're here. And what do you do? Because I had had a lot of experience in, in ocean voyaging. Uh, it's kind of like that. And that's what I did. I, um, you know, I compared it to when 
when we used to do like we do transits from Newport down to the British Virgin Islands to go go offshore. You, you know, you'd be on the boat for two weeks. And from sailing like that, you do it. It's, you know, those trips usually started, there'd be a Bon Voyage party and people would come down to the to the uh, boatyard and send you off. And then of course you got a little drunk and you were hung over for the first two days and you're out at sea. And that's really when some major thing on the boat would break or a storm would come and you'd be going, Oh, what am I doing out here? <laughs> you know, I could be back at the hotel eating eggs Benedict. And you kind of have to literally slap yourself in the face and go, shut the fuck up and, and, and settle in. And you do. I've talked to, you know, a, a bunch of artists who are uh, possibly been on the road as long as you have. And yeah. a lot of them are concerned that they can't really go back to doing regular shows, doing big shows until there's a vaccine. But I don't know. Where's your head on that? I have to be a half full guy because I don't listen to the politics around this. I listen to having had a few uh, close scrapes of my own and depending on science as opposed to anything else to, to get me well. I listen to what's out there and watch uh, what's happening in the medical world and smart people with money. I'm banking on them because this is the moon race for this generation. And there I've met a lot of people, luckily, traveling around who are fans that I know. Uh, I know we're played in a lot of hospitals and in operating rooms and emergency rooms because it takes people away from, you know, I know that that's happened for a long, long time. And, but all those people are, are trying. And I just, I think they're going to have something, uh, you know, you hear it now, the Oxford thing, there's things going on, you know, there's 200 people trying to do this. And this is like us racing the Russians to the moon. You give that to Americans with money and smarts. I'm betting on them as opposed to what's coming out of the political situation. Mm. Think about 9-11. So anybody who's a sports fan, remember back to when you just walked in the state. You could walk in the stadium with a lawnmower and nobody would say anything, you know. <laughs> and I remember it shows people would walk in with, with blenders and cheap deep, and then the promoters would say, you can't bring this in. And we'd have to fight with the promoters going, look, you know, <laughs> this is kind of part of the deal here. So, and then 9-11 comes along. And remember the time you first got wand or you had to take your shoes and your belt off at the airport? You go, this is an, this is an intrusion into my, my you know, inalienable rights here. Well, now how do you go in? You boat up, everybody cruises through. And it's, I think if you see the, you know, the analogy to, to that first time having to do something to be safe to go in to see an event, there's going to be a version of that. Because I think that this is, you know, and when that happens, I think it, we will go back because everybody wants to go, and but nobody wants to, you know. And it's a stage. We're just in a stage that's, you know, funnest part of life. And uh, but I, I'm amazed that people have been so compliant. I mean, there's some crazy ones out there, but in general, it seems like people are taking this seriously, and they should. So you're picturing some kind of like temperature checks at the door kind of situation? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. I mean, I had to go in. I had to go in for a couple of things to. An in, you know, inpatient clinic, I'd bang myself up. So they're doing it now. If you go into a, a hospital or a doctor's office, you know, you're getting your temperature checked right there. You can't even really contemplate a future where you, you don't get to go in front of a big audience again. Like that's not even in your uh, head. I'm waiting for that day. And that's what I tell people. I said, whenever it is and wherever it is, it's going to be a hell of a show. <laughs> and I have to think that, you know, I do. I, I totally believe that it will happen. When you sit down to write an album, 
you now have a whole different part of your life, which is a, a huge business that you, you help run, a very successful business. Is it an entirely different sort of part of your brain, part of your soul that you have to access to go back to writing songs? Or is it somehow all one thing? Because it's not like you're the only one who's successful in, in both yeah. areas. You happen to be ex- exceptionally successful, <laughs> successful in both areas. But, but I, I'm curious well, how you see that. It's interesting because, you know, yeah, sometimes I do have to ask myself, I go, hey, how lucky was I to figure this out? And and the way that it was is because most of the business that comes along with performers that go through it was always kind of, uh, you were kind of ta- told as an artist, you don't need to worry about that stuff. We'll take care of that. But that was part of the whole, you know, the way the business was run back then. It was, you know, talent was a very disposable commodity in my humble opinion. If you had somebody that had a drug problem, then there you're gonna, you would look for the younger person of them because they'd go, well, nobody asked anybody to go to treatment back when I remember. You know, there was not a lot of help coming from your employer of record companies. And uh, so through that whole situation, I was lucky enough to, when I had no job or, and I couldn't play. I was living in Nashville at the time. This was in like the late sixties. I had to get some kind of work and I thought, okay, I'm going to be, you know, ironically enough, there were other than downtown and printer's alley where it was all kind of country bars. There wasn't a lot of places you could go get a job playing live music. And I'd come off of bourbon street after two and a half years working bourbon street. I was a good street performer. I couldn't get a job. And I answered an ad in the Nashville banner. It said, writer wanted, journalism degree needed. I went, aha, I have one. (laughs) I answered the ad and it was Billboard magazine. Right. And next thing you know, from being turned away from every published, this is when I was just trying to get songs written, turned away at every door, never having any success at all in Nashville. They were sending me free records and I was doing reviews and covering concerts. And I went, I like this. But I couldn't ever give anybody in a bad review because I knew what it took to get up there. So, but that period of working for Bill Williams, my editor, I learned what it really was, what the music business really was and what it really was. And still to most degrees now is stacked against you as a performer, unless you take command of your own situation. So always at that point and the way my parents brought me up and I, you know, I worked all my adolescent life. I wanted to work. And I was working as a, in the grocery store as a lifeguard, whatever. I was, you know, I had summer jobs, and I liked having my own money and my own independence. And I think that was a great gift that my parents gave to me that I was able to do that, and they supported that. So when it came to doing it, yeah, I wanted to take care of business because when I first got in, yeah, they took it all away. You know, you want a record deal, get you. And I said, well, I'd like to keep my publishing. They went, well, you can keep your publishing, but you don't have a record deal. You know, that's what that was it until those things changed. So going through that gauntlet of figuring it out, I knew that my, you know, I wasn't that good a guitar player. I wasn't that good a singer, but I could perform well on a stage. And I knew that that was my go-to while I was trying to create these other things. I wanted to be a working musician on a stage playing. And so through that whole process, yeah, well, wait a minute. Um, why would I rent a piano? you know, at the price the promoters pay and when I could buy one and pay it off in 10 shows, you know, you start thinking, why don't I build my own bus and rent it to people? And when I'm not out, so there were things that came from being, you know, brought up in a shipbuilding family. I was thinking about 
those kinds of things which would make doing this performance easier and probably not cost as much. So it all started there. People say uh, John Landau, who went on to manage uh, Bruce Springsteen, that he that he was the most uh, successful former music critic of all time. But they forget about you. That would be you, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my big story, my only front page story, I believe, that I got a billboard is I I broke the the story of the Lester Platt and Earl Scruggs breakup. <laughs> I read that. Yeah. In your commencement address, I think at the University of Miami, you you, you talked about <laughs> you talked about a moment when you you had to make it through a show hungover yeah and you made it through the show you, you did a fine job but in your mind you knew that you didn't do the best you possibly could i'm sure the audience didn't notice anything and that yeah. was a, a big turning point what what happened there yeah it scared it scared me to death because we thought you know you think you're bulletproof at that age and that time and you're in rock and roll and yeah you know drugs and sex everything was around and you don't it but you just there's that that thought process that's in there but to me it was the, at that point in time you know i didn't want to make my family ashamed of me and that was a very strong deterrent from doing that to make that change in my life at that time and i'd worked so hard and I didn't want to be stupid about it. And like I said, I had I had friends, you know, who were gone along the way to that. And you know, I was I was watching the, that uh, the Frank Marshall thing on Laurel Canyon that that's coming out. I, I I watched the last two nights. You know, I always wanted to emulate those guys, and actually, they all became very good friends. But to me, it was like Jim Jim Marsh was 27 years old when he died. Mama Cass was 32, and I'm sitting here at 73, thinking, you know, they must have been in their 60s. That was the shock to me that I forgot about how young people went away. And I just feel lucky I got through it. And I, I made some kind of right decision at the right time. But again, it's too, I know, you know, I've done it and I'm not proud of it. And I know other people can do it. And they call it take the money and run shows where you may not be feeling your best. And you know that you can get away with, with something and the audience won't know it because they're so happy to be there anyway. And, and, uh, I felt terrible when those things happened. I never wanted to do another one. It's interesting. I mean, you never went to, to rehab or any of that. So what did you do to kind of gain control of? Well, I did, I went to therapy. And uh, when recovery from a, a bend became like, you know, you couldn't get back up on the first. Yeah, one day, fine, you can go up there and do it. And you can do the amazing hangover show because adrenaline kicks in. And you're always re- counting on adrenaline. So now we're going back like a lot of years now. This <laughs> hasn't happened in a while. But when it all of a sudden was two days and you're still feeling funky, you know, that's, that was around age 40. I thought, you know, recovering from this is taking like surgical recovery days. I don't want to do this anymore. And I just didn't, you know, just did it. I said, you know, there's, and I got I scared myself a few times and that was enough to say no. You were good friends with the Hunter S. Thompson. And yeah. he, he <laughs> obviously a brilliant guy. It sounds like you had some amazing time yeah, he with did, him. He didn't do that. <laughs> he didn't do that. And, and and what's interesting in a sort of contrast to you is is one of the things that some people and and you you knew him. I didn't, so I don't want to put words. Yeah. But what people say about him is that he fell into a trap of his persona, and he wanted to keep proving his persona, and that was part of like his his lifestyle, and he couldn't escape that. I'm curious how that was, if you see it that way and how, and, and if that's a accurate well, <laughs> description. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had an amazing relationship, but there were times that I didn't want to be around him because I knew he was going there. And there are other times, you know, he was, he was an amazing fun guy to be with, uh, you know, and he, 
he took me to meet Muhammad Ali in New Orleans after after the uh, well the Leon Spinks fight. You know, so Hunter was you know he was a grown up you know adolescent kind of smart, incredible individual. You know, and you looked at friends he had, and, and he was more political than anybody I knew at that time, but he could get into the doors, and he wasn't just political to one view of himself or what his politics were, but everybody, and like, there are people I know today that I see on TV and journalists and all were great friends of Hunter's, you know, conservatives, liberals, crazy, whatever they were, because I think, in a way, he got to be what, and got to say what they couldn't, and, uh, it's kind of like maybe in the music business there, you know, there's so many people out there that want to make it in any of the sports or music or whatever, or whatever it is that they want to do that, that they have a job that sucks, but they think ours is just, you know, like fantasy land. And it's not, it's like anything else, but you have a lot of people out there that wish they could be somebody else. And I think that that with Hunter, has held on a long time. You know, he was an amazing guy. Tragedy, yeah. I mean, I'm very sorry that he did what he did, you know. And But, you know, you could see it coming. I hate to say that, but you could see it coming. And I didn't know whether he could stop. So I don't have the answer to why he did it, but I knew he wasn't going to do it. How did you escape the mental trap of and never being like, well, wait, I'm Jimmy Buffett. I'm supposed to represent this thing. I have this persona but when it came time to grow up in some fashion yeah. in your forties, you did do that though, didn't you? Yeah. I had to do that. Yeah. I'm lucky I did it too. In the new song, uh, devil I know, which I really like. Yeah. Is, you sing about being uh, back at a bar at 3 AM. In the morning came without a warning. Wound up with some old buccaneer. Telling lies about the time I won the Nobel prize. Do you kind of still hear that call from time to time? Is it a little bit of regression or, or is it fiction? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, and uh, I lived through enough of those things. And, and, you know, and the devils I put in that song, you know, were, were people that my, my dear friend, my first Ricky Bennett, my roommate in college, we started our first band together, Hunter, of course, and, and Phil Clark, who I wrote Power Looks at 40 about. They were devils. You know, they could have devil. I didn't, you know, as a Jesuit Catholic trained altar boy, I had a little, that angel didn't go far. That devil was still there, but, you know, I think they had a little more of the devil in it than me. So I'd hang with them, but uh, not that long. <laughs> so that, that feels thoroughly in the past now. There's, there's no. Uh... <laughs> no, I went to Mardi Gras this year in New Orleans. And uh, no, I could, I remembered what state I went to Mardi Gras in before that. And, you know, and I had like, I had eight tequila, went to the parades, ate dinner, was in bed. You know, I did what I did, and I had a really good time and didn't think. I mean, it's funny to ask because I, I thought about that, how I'd done it before. And uh, <laughs> I was okay with it now. And I had probably had a better time because I remembered the whole thing. <laughs> when I really listened to the song Margaritaville, I've always heard the melancholy in it. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not like it's not even a subtle thing. It's, it's, a, it's a big part of the song. But I don't know that people get that from the song. And maybe it's because of your upbeat persona or, or what. But it's so fascinating that a song with that obvious melancholy in it not only became such a huge hit, but obviously the linchpin of this brand <laughs> of escapism. So how, how do you kind of reconcile that in your mind? It's always fascinating. Well, you know, I never thought about it when I wrote it and, and like, 
I started it in Austin, Texas in a bar. A friend of mine has put me on a plane to go back to Key West. And I finished it in Key West. And, uh, you know, I played it in the bar and people liked it. But I go back to, you know, Ry Cooter said once, you never know what the public's going to buy. You never do. And the interesting thing to your point is that when we did the musical and we did the play, when it was presented in the play by Chris Ashley, the director, and Chris Yonke, the music director that I work with there, they did it as a melancholy song. And it goes into the verse at the end. And, you know, crowds of people that heard that song heard it that way. And, and me too, I went, man, that, you know, it's done. Yeah, there's there's a little melancholy in here, but you got to get over it. And you, and you got to, you know, I always love that part of the show because, you know, audience is like, when I'm playing it, it's like, ah! and at this point, people are listening like they were in the theater. And then by the end of it, everybody's singing and it kind of takes its way out. But it's like the theme of Mardi Gras is folly chasing death, you know? So, you know, you, know, you got to have fun to keep the devil away. So, but I love the way that they did it there. And uh, I've never done it that way, but I sure like listening to it that way. Another song that, you know, you play pretty damn frequently, uh, and it's a great song, Come Monday. Uh, yeah. And when you played it for David Letterman years ago, you told him <laughs> that it was, uh, who, and it was his personal request, which was nice, but you told him that, that you were in a genuinely uh, dark place when, when, you, uh, when you wrote it. Well, I, th- I think I wrote it for my girlfriend at the time, wife still now, and we had been in Montana with visiting friends and family up there. You know, this, this is right up after like the Rancho Deluxe days when I did the music for that movie. And I went off to work and I was, I had to go to San Francisco and I can't quite remember. We may have had a fight, but we may not have been getting along, but I was in a holiday inn on Mount Tamalpais, missing her. And I wrote that song. Hmm. When you listen to it now, it almost, uh, the studio version, it could be an entirely different artist. It's a, it's in a whole world of, of, of its own. Rent a cars and westbound trains. And now you're off on vacation. Something you tried to explain. Yeah. Early on, before there was ever even MTV, they used to make little shorts that they play uh, in movie theaters in, in front. And one day I get a call and, and from my manager, and they're sending, this was, uh, I think, uh, well, was, I was living and dying. I think Come Monday was on the second album. But they sent a film crew down to shoot three songs in Key West. And they shot like, you know, full on film stuff. And, uh, and they did come Monday and they did a video of it. And it's, it, I look at it back and boy, we are young and innocent, but it, it, it is, it's, it kind of fits the song the way they did the video, you know? And actually Jane is in the video because we, you know, they just came and followed wow. us around. Yeah. When you first heard it back in uh, 1980 that Bob Dylan had covered uh, Pirate Looks at 40, <laughs> what was your reaction to that? What do you think, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it was 85. He did it with Joan Baez at a concert uh, somewhere out west. And I think it was an Anna Nuke or a Peace Sunday rally, 1982. 1982. And, so you know, of course, there was no social media back there. I didn't know. And somebody told me about it later. And I went, what? And then because you couldn't see it. I mean, I knew it had happened, but I don't think I saw it happen was I thrilled about it yeah i mean unbelievable and then years later uh i met dylan in st bart's when he sailed in on his boat and i spent a day with him on his boat it was pretty amazing 
and uh, he likes that song. How can I say? <laughs> now, did Bob Dylan know what he was doing on that on his boat, or did he have people uh, doing that for him? Yeah, he, he knew yeah. what he was. Yeah, yeah, he was there, and uh, I, I was walking through Gustavia in the harbor, and I was I was going by the Marine Supply Store, and I was looking in the window, and and uh, <laughs> I heard this voice say, "Hey, Jimmy, that's a good, nice looking pair of shoes, isn't it?" And I looked around, and went, oh, that's Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> so he invited me out on the boat. We spent all day together on the boat. And then he was seeing a, a girl that I knew on the island. Then he sailed away. And uh, I knew a couple of guys who worked for him on the road. And then it's the funny back into this. So I spent that day. And I mean, we sat there and talked and got stoned all day long. And I'm going, hmm. you go. <laughs> <laughs> but then later I was in Paris doing something. And I think it was when, when Dylan was with Petty. And uh, I went to see the show, and I knew Jim Callahan, the security guy. And he said, yeah, Bob's been looking for you. He wants to see you. And I thought, all I remembered <clears throat> of my time with Bob Dylan was that one day on the boat in St. Barts. So cut to two or three years later. And I'm thinking, man, we have a bond here. <laughs> and I go backstage, and I think it was the Zenith in Paris. <clears throat> and Callahan said, he's right over there. Go over there and see him. And Dylan was sitting there eating, had his gloves on, and he's going to have his hoodie on. And I said, I went, Bob, how you doing? He went, huh? And he ate. <laughs> he never said a word. I sat there the whole time. I ate my meal. I said, well, have a good show. See you later. Went, huh? That was it. Mm. And I haven't seen him since. <laughs> Some people who have encounters like that, they theorize that maybe he wasn't wearing his glasses. And then, so that there was a lot, because, you know, he's, he's, he's funny about his glasses. So that, that could have been it. I never thought of that. I, maybe. I'm, I'm going to use that because, yeah, he didn't look up much. I remember that. He ate That's it. My, and my last thing about Bob Dylan is, is years later, they asked him who his favorite songwriters were. And he, he said I made you. the book. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Am I honored? You bet. It's funny. I mean, I, I think that if there's a curse to the level of success you've had, both as a a touring artist with this uh, gigantic inflamed cult of fans and your success as a businessman, it could potentially overshadow the songwriting in some people's minds. I, I don't know if that ever, if it ever, if it ever feels that way. It doesn't, but you know, it amazes me now that I go back and look at the volume of, of how much is there that I, you know, because in the beginning you made an album a year because they wanted an album a year and you had enough stuff. And then, you know, as as success came along, you know, and as I said, we were a touring band. It didn't matter to me because we never got on MTV. We, you know, I had two, maybe three things that got on top 40 radio. We weren't big hit makers, but we drew. We drew people. And that was, you know, as somebody said once, we were like uh, deadheads with credit cards. You know, people came out <laughs> to see us because they wanted to have a good time. That's all I can figure out. And but what was good about it is every now and then, you know, I could slip something in and like he went to Paris is one of my favorite songs I wrote yeah. it's about somebody and uh, everybody loves that song, you know, and it's like and I do. I've done Death of an Unpopular Court one or two times. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Don't you yeah. worry about that. But and survive. And there are songs that people do go to the ballads. And yeah, the songwriting probably gets overlooked sometimes, but I don't mind. I mean, I've had a great run of everything and I'm enjoying it and I'm not telling people what to listen to. As like I said, once they're out the door, it's up to you make it for them. You don't make it for yourself. And, uh, and people have different tastes and, and, and different ideas about what they think are the better songs. They can have whatever they want with that. Cause I'm not going to try to make it any different. The, uh, I want, I did want to ask you about the late uh, Bill Withers because you had one of the yeah. few latter day collaborations with him. 
Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, how'd you even find him? What was that like? <laughs> Ralph McDonald, two words. When Ralph McDonald connected, I connected up with Ralph McDonald through Elliot Shiner, the producer is a good friend of mine when they were working in New York. And the uh, one of the most amazing percussionists and, and wonderful characters that I ever had. And he, he was in our band for, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And he was such a figure in New York because he was one of the top session musicians. And he had his own studio called Rosebud Studios down on Broadway, I think 44th Street or something. And all these cats would hang out there. You know, like I remember meeting Marcus Miller when he was about like 17 years old working in Ralph's studio. And uh, Cornell Dupree and, uh, and the Brecker brothers. And so he, there was this whole wonderful kind of group of, musicians that played, you know, uh, Richard T and people like that. And, and they were all kind of, that was the hang was there. And that's where I met Bill was because Ralph had written just the two of us. And, uh, I think, I don't know if he wrote lovely day or not, but he and Bill Salters and, uh, Bill Eden and Ralph wrote a lot of those songs. And so Bill, I think that they produced that album, uh, for Clarence Avon, if I'm not mistaken, but, Bill was kind of hanging there and we just hit it off. I mean, he was such, I loved his stuff anyway, but he is just as genuine. Yeah. You can, you can tell genuine people if you're, you know, you know, and so he would, he'd come out because he lived in California. He'd come to shows and see shows. And I, <clears throat> I would never push him to come up and, you know, do an appearance show because I know he was very shy at the time, but he'd come look at shows and all. And one day we, we were in the studio out there and, uh, and we did, he had this idea and he loved country music. We wrote, uh, you know, Simply Complicated and had a ball doing it. And he loved doing it. He wanted to do a country song. And so I can't remember if he came to Nashville with the Sonata, whether we did it in L.A. But then he, he also kind of, when uh, we did the movie Hoot, my oldest daughter, Savannah, were friends with, they went, she went to school with Adam Levine and the, uh, and the Maroon 5 guys. And so that kind of collaboration there got, that song into the, and the movie and Bill sang on that with them too. But he was just a wonderful, wonderful soul. And uh, before I let you go, the lack of concerts right now is making a lot of people kind of look back, uh, whether yeah. it's their concert going career or their performing career. And I was just curious, I mean, is there a singular peak experience on the stage for you or, or one or two that, that stick out in your mind that just would totally transcend in moments on, on, on the stage from all out of all those years? Oh, yeah. I can tell you, the, the first one that comes to mind to me, I mean, I've had some, you know, it's not the size of the crowd. I mean, I've played big places and there. Yeah, of course, there are times you get up there and you're playing to 45,000 people. And you turn around and go, can you fucking believe this? And I say to the <laughs> band, but my band is we're like that. You know, <clears throat> it's still it should it should be something that's awesome that kind of takes your breath away. I think, you know, if you're a performer. Because you're making it happen, but they're having a good time. But the one that most sticks out in my mind is, again, it was back. We were basically an opening act at the time when we were doing sheds. And, you know, promoters would start you in clubs. And they, they, it was like minor league ball. And you, if they liked you and you were drawing, you know, they saw potential. They'd keep you on. And eventually you could make it a headliner. So we had made it through the list. And we were playing Blossom Music Festival outside of Cleveland in, uh, in Cuyahoga Falls. Um, Tell them that. And so we'd done it like probably three or four times as a headliner. We draw, you know, 
four or five thousand people and the place held eighteen thousand but promoters still kept us going and you know that was our draw and i remember i think at one point i think bonnie opened for us there or the little feet or so we were kind of mm. combined up with those guys and one you know i started open for them then they would open for us and so we were just going to work as usual to a show there and we were in the cars kind of driving from the airport into the venue and as we got close i saw this this guy on the side of the road that had a sign said need tickets and i'm in the car and said to the guys about hell what's he need tickets for this place <laughs> tickets in there and we got there and uh i can't remember which promoter it was at the time came out and said uh you sold out and i went oh what <laughs> he said blossom <laughs> And it happened like that. The year before, it had been 5,000 people. That day, 18,000 people showed up. And walk out on that stage to that, I will never forget that because everything, all the hard work and all the things that we had all done together, my band, my crew, and everybody, you know, having a good time and being happy where we were, hoping one day maybe we could be like the Eagles we opened for Fleetwood or whatever, you know, that was our goal. And then all of a sudden, when you realize that it happened, it was a great moment. It really was. So that is our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. And we are also a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Those are always appreciated and I do read them. But as always, thanks for listening. Please stay safe out there, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.